1: Hello, my name's Jess Phillips and this is yours sincerely. At the start of the very first lockdown, I was seeing so many of my constituents who were losing loved ones to COVID-19 without a chance to say goodbye. Women putting their husbands into ambulances and never seeing them again. It got me thinking about what I would say to my husband and kids if I never got a chance to tell them how much I loved them. So I wrote them each a letter and I still keep it in a safe place. I've always been a prolific letter writer and know the power of putting words on paper. So in this podcast, I want to give my guests a chance to celebrate three people that mean the world to them. Someone they love, someone who's no longer around, and someone who doesn't realize how significant a role they've played in their lives. Deborah Francis White is a stand-up comedian, podcaster, and screenwriter, whose work touches on topics like feminism, diversity, and inclusion. She's best known for her multi-award winning podcast, The Guilty Feminist, as well as her appearances on shows like Have I Got News For You. And today I'm excited to talk to her about the letters she would send to three people who mean the world to her. Hello, Deborah. How are you?
0: Hello, Jess. It's a funny time to say you're well, isn't it? Like, it's been, um, let's say, tactfully challenging year and a half, and it feels like the world is the world's turned upside down to quote little Manuel Miranda, but you know, we're still getting out of bed every day and we're still doing it. And we're still finding joy in small things. And we are the luckiest people in the world. So I'm on a podcast. I'm not complaining.
1: <laughs> well, that is that, that is a sort of gratitude of, uh, of, of small things. That's, that's what I'd like to hear. So this is all about letter writing and I suppose gratitude as well, uh, whilst you're being eternally grateful for your uh, your existence and our lucky place in the world, which is without doubt undeniable. So we're going to try and show a little bit of gratitude uh, today. So are you much of a letter writer?
0: You know, I used to be when I was younger and now this sort of instant message culture means when am I going to sit down and write a letter to my mum? I'm not going, I'm going to say, oh, look, I just saw a very beautiful bird out my window. Here's a picture of the bird. And then she'll say, oh, what a lovely bird. We've uh, I saw some birds in the park. So, you know, and then, <laughs> so yes, you could say we'd written letters to each other, but they are, you write a line and then they write a line and you write a line and they write a line. And honestly, if Lord Byron, <laughs> Vita Sackville West... Uh, Mark Twain had had instant messaging, that's what they would have used. They would have said, I need to tell you right now how much I love you. And the other person would have said, I need to tell you right now that I'm in bed with a rake.
1: Do you, do you think though that, you know, how do you feel that Mark Twain would have coped with like, you know, seeing the thing that said, you know, so-and-so was typing? Dorothy Parker? <laughs> types. I think that the great love letters... The great love letters of the world would not have been helped by those three little pips that come up on an iPhone. He left me on read.
0: He read read it and he walked away. He said nothing. Silence. Uh, There would have been poetry about the silence of the instant
1: message left unanswered. Yeah, I don't allow people to know whether I've read the messages or not, largely because of journalists. I don't like them to... The sort of like, you know, when there's a news story that is uh, that is breaking that is very deeply important to them, but I might be in the middle of a million different things. Um, I... Uh, the, the sort of a, aggression and need to... You to immediately give them a comment about it. I don't like them to know whether I've read the message or not. So I don't allow people to know whether I have read the messages or not oh, you've you've got that's
0: that's that's dearly resolved to turn that off see now I would turn that off except it's reciprocal so
1: I wouldn't be able to see if people had read my messages and I need to know that you see I'm happy I'm happy to just assume that they have because I know that even when I'm not telling people that I've read the messages that hundred percent of the time I've read the messages <laughs> Good to know. So there you go. That's good to that's, know. That's, that's, that's just a little tip for later. Jess Phillips, <laughs> always leaving you on read. that's it. Assume I've definitely read the message. You know what? I haven't read, though. I ha- definitely haven't read the millions of tweets that people send to me and then say things like, oh, she didn't even respond to me when I asked her a question about nothing to do with her constituency or nothing to do with anything that she has anything to do with. She's not even bothered about us, the people. I haven't read all of those. I don't read. You can't. It would be a full-time job. It would literally. Somebody said to me the day, I assumed in your office, you had somebody who monitored all of the media that came in about you. I was just like, my office are dealing with my constituents. <laughs> like, you know, I'd need a full-time person. Messing about with that all day. But also that person's mental health would be so
0: poor because Twitter is a, a terrible place and it is mostly irrelevant. It is mostly irrelevant. Individuals wanting to be heard. But as you say, you don't work. That it, it, I think people forget MPs work for constituencies, especially women, because if you're a woman, it's like, well, now you need to speak for all women of the United Kingdom. But it's a bit like... All the time. Yeah. But it's a bit like somebody saying... Um, I was very unhappy with my Coca-Cola. I wrote to you, you work for Pepsi. <laughs> Where is my response? It's like, I don't work for you. I, I'm really sorry I don't work for you. You know, like I work for a different constituency. Uh, but you are seen as the sort of place for all women. But I think you to, to, to be fair, you did say on the Guilty Feminist once on my podcast that if you're a woman and you can't get through to anyone, I will help you. That was foolish. That was like a a lecturer. (laughs) A lecturer I had at Oxford who said on the first day, if you ever have any questions about this series of lectures, here's my phone number. Call me. And anyway, I became really good friends with her. She, she, I asked her to tutor me for something, and you know, um, what? And then another time, she and her husband were over at my place for uh, a lunch, and he asked me how I'd become friends with her. And I said, well, she gave her phone number out at the beginning of her lecture and he went, what?! this is why you're so overworked. You're broadcasting your phone number to every student in the university. And then you say, oh, no, I've never got any time for myself because I'm dealing with a million things. He was like, he couldn't believe it. And she was like, I just want people to feel like, you know,
1: and that's you. It uh, is, mate. My children f- frequently threaten me when I won't let them have something that they're going to dox me and put my phone number on the internet. <laughs> that's That's a great threat of my two teenage sons. Um it's actually just the younger one. I don't want to take the older one down. He's considerably more sensible. But yeah, the younger one's like, "I'm just going to put your phone number on the internet and then you'll be sorry."
0: This is how the world has changed, isn't it? Where your teenager can <laughs> threaten to cancel
1: you. I yeah. oh,
0: have you cancelled. I know things. I can take audio in this place. I'll put that on Twitter. You'll never work again.
1: My elder son put on Wikipedia that I um ate crisps in the bath. I ate Specifically, quavers cheese crisps in the bath, and Wikipedia asked for a citation, and uh, my my son just wrote, "I live with her. I do not eat quavers in the bath." Uh, Wikipedia duly took that down. Uh, anyway, we must get onto the the topic at hand because uh, we would just talk all day, otherwise, Deb, and that would be a delight for you and I. But uh, we we've got to get on. So, do you have any like letters that you kept from the past? Like that you've got squirrelled away, love letters or important letters?
0: Letters from my mother, a couple of letters from my husband.
1: Um,
0: Yeah, they're in a shoebox under the bed. You know, sometimes when you go through old cards and, you know, old things, you're normally looking for something. And then instead of finding that thing, you end up reading a letter that your mother wrote to you when you first left home and, you know, went on your gap year and never returned. And... Yes, I find them very sentimental and lovely and they're little snapshots of time and what, what you valued then, what the landscape was then, what the possibilities were then. And also that the, the very medium of sitting down with pen and paper, thinking out what you were going to say, you know, f- finding turns of phrase jokes, uh, the way that you now might write, you know, a blog or, you know, a letter, uh, an article for The Guardian or something like that. That's how you would write letters, uh it 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 was a much less casual art form then
1: yeah i agree i i think that i i've reread some letters that maybe my girlfriends sent me when we were like 16 And it's got like in jokes in them that I just don't even remember now. Like so in, they stayed in the time when they were from that I cannot understand them. But that you were definitely trying to like land a good line in the letter. You were definitely trying to... I remember some of my friends who, when they would go off and be on Gap Years or whatever it was, sending emails and just really trying to craft it to be funny, like all the time. Like definitely it was a craft that I don't think many people necessarily carry on in in their lives unless they like you and I might do we write things and we write books and and articles and things right then so this podcast is all about writing letters to celebrate the people who matter to us so starting with the person who means the world to you who would you send your first letter to
0: I think the person I'm feeling most grateful to at the moment uh, is Josie Norton, who started Choose Love and has built it into an enormous organization. And Choose Love was originally called Help Refugees, and their slogan was Choose Love. And it was started when there was a, a very poignant image of a little boy washed up on the beach in Greece who was a refugee who had drowned. And it really changed things internationally. Individual citizens wanted to stand up and and get involved where governments were failing. And I think Josie tried to raise with some friends £6,000 to take supplies to Calais, where there was a big refugee camp known as the Calais Jungle. People all wanted to contribute, so I think they quickly raised 70000 rather than 6000 And that rolled on. I don't think Josie understood how much her life would change when she went out to that camp. And she also saw the potential for influence, that if she were prepared to go out and do the logistics, people would contribute. And choose love, which I think is just such a wonderful idea, and it's encapsulated in two words, that love is something you could choose. You don't have to intuitively feel it you can decide hold on a minute no this there's no justice here I'm going to choose to be loving it's an action it's not a feeling and the reason I feel so grateful to Josie um, and increasingly Philly who she works with who I then get to work with is because my podcast The Guilty Feminist is a big platform and my listeners love to be active they love to be involved they want to know what they can do and so to have Somebody who is running something that is working, that is active, that is real. I know where the money's going. I know if I buy a coat for a child, a child will get a coat. And that's such a simple idea. And so for me, it means that instantly I can be useful. I can feel I'm making a change. I can use my influence to plug into something good and practical and here and now and happening and real. And if Josie hadn't started that, and I I don't know, Jess, how you start something like that, how you build it and how you develop the infrastructure and how you keep all those balls in the air and how you, where do you get the coats and how do you get them there? And, you know, how do you get, you know, I know there's lots of
1: international laws and sort of charity. I don't know how she does what she does. I don't know. I bet she didn't know when she started. I bet she didn't know. I bet she had no idea when she started because anybody who ever started anything good or anything that changed anything didn't know what the bloody hell they were doing when they started but they they chose they chose love and they chose to cope with the terrible things that come along with it and and when i say terrible things i mean bureaucracy <laughs> a lot of the time
0: but also criticism whoever does anything you know you get so much criticism and and you know and sometimes that criticism is valid and i would say that you know i've built the guilty feminist on criticism by listening and going oh okay well we can change that But there are times when if you are especially a woman, some days, especially if you're on social media, you will just get hit with an absolute barrage of you've done this incorrectly. And especially that sort of 280 characters aggressive blast and says in the middle of the day and says you're disappointing an unfeminist for something that they've just totally misunderstood. They've just misunderstood what you you were doing. That's nothing to do with any of those things. It's really easy to sink. And I think the thing that i see with josie is a she's just absolutely laser focused on what she's doing she's she's getting supplies to refugees and she has you know also now because of you know her influence you know influenced public policy influenced you know governments to to change and things like that but ultimately her job is while governments are failing and people are standing there resourceless who've run from terror. How do I get the child a coat? How do I get a warm meal into everybody you know at least twice a day? How do I how do I get people how do we build showers? And she took me to Greece the October before lockdown so I could see how it all worked in Greece because there's a huge operation there on Lesbos. Um, There was a man there who ran his he had his ex-wife was Syrian his kids were half Syrian and he had a business in the UK and he said that business sort of runs itself now he was kind of like a, um, a late middle-aged man and so he said I decided to start a laundry in Greece and you know it was so I find it so incredible like this was his full-time job he was like oh, I fly back to the UK every now and again check on the business but this is my job is making sure people have really beautifully laundered clothes and it's you know this horribly overcrowded camp where people are living so on top of each other but they can do they can get a service laundry and he said what we try and do is make sure you know if you'd had that done in the UK or a really nice laundry it'd be tied with a ribbon and your name would be on it and the socks would be paired and that's how I want to give it back to people because that's a moment of humanity for them where it's something special. It's not just sort of just being washed and thrown back at you. You know, things like that, that, you know, there was a chap out there running, uh, you know, the loos and the showers and all the sanitation. And he got choked up when he was telling me about the first time there were some women getting their children into hot showers. And you know, women who had kept their children pristine, clean all their lives and suddenly their children are cold and dirty. And, you know, as a mother, you're standing there going, I don't, I can't, I don't want this. And he said the first time they went into those showers and I heard them crying because their children were warm for a minute and, and clean and they were able to clean their children. And he was like, he was choked up talking about it because it, and I was like, because I was thinking, who does this? Who comes to a refugee camp and deals with shit every day? Because that's what he does. And things, sewers overflow because it's, it's you know, there's a room for 3,000. I mean, horribly, there's room for 3,000. Not luxury, there's room for 3,000. There's just tents and it's a rocky hill. And there are people like that who I think almost like have an extra helping of humanity that are just doing remarkable things because, they get it they get that if you were in the worst possible situation somebody going there's a hot shower here yeah you have to queue up for it yeah you'll be cold again and you know your kids will be dirty again in in you know in a little bit but here for this moment there is something human and that you know if i couldn't if if josie hadn't you know they're all partners by the way they're all they're all partners of choose love and josie's funding them and supporting them and getting money out of people who've got it do you think that Josie knows how much she means to you. I mean, we say it to each other very every now and again at sort of sentimental moments. (laughs) We do have those moments of going, you know, like she'll text me and go, thank you for being so brilliant. And I'll go, thank you for creating the infrastructure so that I have somewhere, I, I don't just have to sit here feeling useless thinking, I wish I could do something. And so, you know, these things are easier. If you plug into something like Choose Love, And I also love doing things with Amnesty. I'm ambassador for That's a huge infrastructure. And all you need to do is plug in. Sometimes people think, oh, I don't know what to do. Plug into a comic relief, plug into an Amnesty, plug into a choose love. You know, you'll have other ones and, you know, that may be passionate, you know, important for you. Plug into them and then you do one thing really well and feed in.
1: Yeah, definitely focus. What I would say is people say to me, people come to me all the time and say, I want to do something. What is that something? Well, what I would say to people always is, you come up with the something... Uh, because you're going to be good at, what are you good at? I can sit and say, well, you can can you stuff these envelopes for five hours um, um, that we're sending out to donors or whatever it is. Or... But you might be able to do a, an amazing bake sale in that time. Exactly. Like, what can you do? You tell me what is your thing. And I will say, OK, well, th- go to these people. And they do a brilliant thing just like that. And you'll be able to help out with that. Um, like you know, go round your neighbours and 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 get stuff for the refugees who are arriving here in the UK or whatever it is. But like you know, that for, if you focus on one thing and you get to plug into a bigger thing, it feels like it's a bit like the John F Kennedy thing, at talking to the cleaner and him saying, "I put a man on the moon." It is like like everybody can definitely take part in in the effort and the help. Um, and and but you need people to build you you're absolutely right, you need people to build the scaffolding for you to plug into.
0: And the you know, the the way that the Guilty Feminist listeners have have sort of mainlined into it as well, going out to Calais to volunteer. I met a woman in America who went from like somewhere like Iowa to Calais, uh, to volunteer, you know, and that was sort of meant to be for UK people to go over to Calais to volunteer. And You know, they guilty feminists went over in droves because they would ask them all the time, you know, like, where did you hear about this at the morning briefing? And they said eventually 100% of people were saying they're guilty feminist, you know, and I just, that's a a big thing that I've been able to do because Josie did what she did.
1: So how would you you sign off a letter then to Josie?
0: I would say because you chose love, you allow us all to choose love.
1: She is, a, I mean, I've met her myself and she is a remarkable woman. At the same time, I have to say, like most remarkable people, she wears it lightly.
0: She's so bats it off as well. I mean, she does. She bats it off. She's fun and she's happy and she's cheerful and she's joyful.
1: Yeah, she wears it lightly. She doesn't, it's not like, you know, she's uh, sort of promenading around as if she's done this amazing thing she wears it lightly but sternly when she wants you to do something I would say certainly from a, p- a politician's perspective is that you know this is this matters what are we going to do about it and yeah I think that it's uh she she is a remarkable woman
0: I will another thing that I will say is a lot of people leave out the joy they sort of think I've got to be stern and I've got to be angry and I've got to be proactive and I've got to be laser-focused and all of those things are valuable and important. But she draws people to her because she has joy. And the more that we can bring joy and gratitude and laughter and love into our activism, the more powerful and potent it will be. It's not always easy if you're feeling very angry. It's not always easy. But people who do have that sense of joy, that magnetic sense of joy
1: bring them into your activism because they they are magnets there is nothing and you don't this doesn't get represented properly but when you change something or you feel like you did a good thing and you're stood with the team of people that you did it with it's like your heart is bursting in your chest and it feels like the greatest joy in the world when you think oh my god we did this we did this and it feels like the purest joy and people don't talk about that so much. People are like, you know, it's hard, but we're going to do it together. Actually, you laugh more than anything else when you're with a team of people and it's, it's like, you know, midnight and you're knackered and you're like, oh God, is this going to work? I just have no idea if this is going to work. You inevitably you get to that point where you're laughing so much you can't make a fist and <laughs> I love that laughing so much you can't make a fist um and that happens in 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 organizations trying to change the world more than any anywhere in the world so that's sort of where you turn desperation into just rolling laughter um and that is that is um it's it's infectious and she is a brilliant person to uh write a letter of thanks to and at the moment she will be working flat out um and we've all got our work cut out for us to help resettle any of those who are currently coming over from afghanistan So, for your second letter i've asked you to prepare is a letter to someone who is no longer around. Who would your second letter be to? This would be to my dad um,
0: who passed away when I was a grown up but far too young and I would you know I actually did make it home. he was dying, and I had to jump on a plane and the nurse I spoke to, he said, "You won't make it. It's going to be twenty four hours. You won't make it." And I was like, "Oh my god! Like, why would you say that? Like, even if you, you know, you I, you can't say that. You don't know. You can say you need to repair yourself. You might not make it." Anyway, he was wrong because my dad was told I was coming, um, and I'm sure he waited, as people sometimes can. No, they can't always, but sometimes people can hold on. And so I did get a moment alone with him to sit and tell him things. I couldn't get much of a voice up and I'm always scared because they say the hearing is the last thing to go if someone's had a stroke. And I always get scared that he didn't quite hear me. He was thinking, speak up, and he couldn't hear me. But I told him, you know, all the wonderful things about him and, and how I wasn't always, you know, grateful enough as children aren't as they're growing up. I'm an adopted child And he never made me feel adopted. I have two siblings that were his biological children. And there was never any difference between us as we were growing up. And, you know, things like that I look back on now and go, my God, you know, he would drive me to my private drama class every Saturday morning. And it was like an hour away. And it was his day off, you know. And I would just get in the car and change the radio station and be a bit huffy with him. And now I look back and go, my God, like, you know, and he would sit at the front of the class reading the newspaper waiting for me. And then when well, I come out and he'd go, how was it? And i go, "You're yeah, fine. You know, and I wouldn't tell him, you know, like, and I'm like, God, imagine if somebody did that to you, you know, you'd just be like, what are you doing? Why are you like this?
1: It's like every single parent now who is listening to this is like saying, I just want one bit of information about what you did at school today. Just one. I I'm like, what did you have for lunch? Like I don't wanna hear it. I just want to hear one piece of information about their day. And nothing they can they can offer up nothing other than it's fine. Yeah.
0: They don't want it. They're so uncommunicative teenagers. But I think with other people I could be, but with my dad, I think there was a bit of a personality clash when I was younger and I wasn't as kind to him as I wish I had been given sort of what a good dad he was really, actually, and how attentive he was. And, you know, he used to, when we were kids, work, you know, smaller children, take a night shift in our holidays I think so that he could take us to the beach, because we lived on a beach town in Australia, so he could take us to the beach every morning. And there was a sort of hands-onness to his you know, to, to him and a and a I think he really loved being a dad, actually. And I wish I I wish I'd understood more what parenting was like when I was a kid. Sometimes people say, Do you know who your real dad is? And I'm like, sure, yeah, he raised me. Um, it, I, I can't, people who aren't adopted don't get it. They don't off, not hashtag not all people are not adopted, but a lot of people do not get it. And even at one point I was trying to find information about my biological father and the guy the adoption, the official government adoption, you know, place was calling my biological father, my real father or your dad. And I was like, no, he's not my dad. He's my biological father. That is a different thing. And I had to keep correcting him because I can't let it go. And I do mean, I can't let it go once. I have to correct people every single time they say it. And I know it's a bit annoying, but it feels really disloyal. Um, And so I have never found my biological father, um, but my real dad found me when I was a baby. I mean, I struggled to uh, get pregnant and didn't get pregnant. um, But I always knew that, biology wasn't family because I'd never you know growing up I never had biology and I always had family so you know and listen adoption is not unproblematic and it's a big old topic which I do not wish to brush under the carpet but what I do want to say today is you know uh is my dad was consistently and relentlessly there for me through my childhood and it's the relentless nature of parenthood that I really get now and I'm grateful for even though I'm not a parent in the traditional way, uh, you know. It's that sort of every bloody day, the same old, same old, same old, and you can't take time off the way you can other things that are hard, and you know. And I, you know, he's not here. I can say thanks to my mum because she's still here, and I do.
1: Do you say thanks to her? Good, that's good.
0: Yeah, once once when she was over here in London, and I did a I did a piece on stage about it, and uh, yeah, no, and I've said and I've written it to her a lot, and no, I'm I'm very expressive with my mum. But with my dad, uh, yeah, if I could send one letter back to someone, you know, who'd, who was no longer with us, it would be him. And I would just want him to know for absolute sure how much it meant.
1: Yeah, I bet you he did know. Because most parents I think he did. Most parents are not expecting sort of gratitude speeches from their children. I'd just I'd like it if they just picked up the shoes. Uh that would show a sign of gratitude for me. Is <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you I could just be replaced with a tape that just says Can you pick up your shoes? Where are your shoes? Can you find your shoes? That's, I mean, literally, uh, it's like shoes and teeth. They seem to be the two things that I have been repeating now for a solid 17 years, talking to them about their shoes and their teeth. And the way that they could show me the deepest gratitude is if they just... Remember to move the shoes. I don't want hearts and flowers. If, just just move the shoes. Just move the shoes. Maybe that's what they could do on your birthday. Right? <laughs> to be honest, I think I might be slightly disappointed if that was all <laughs> they did. <laughs> Happy my birthday, birthday.
0: present was look,
1: look, look, no shoes. No shoes. I wouldn't notice the trouble. Um, so I, I bet he did know. I bet he knew that you were grateful. I think
0: he did. I think he did. We had a couple of, you know, tearful reunions and things when I went back. But I think of him a lot. How long ago did he die? Uh
1: over ten years ago now. Yeah, oh, I think if it will not. Same for me and my mum. And I think it will go she died when I was twenty nine, so yeah, eleven years ago now. And I think it will I don't know what I'm expecting for one day for it to go away. Uh I don't even want it to go away. It's not like that, but I spend a huge amount of time thinking about her and I sometimes think, Still this? Just yes, like so. it's not even necessarily a sadness. It's it's an undoneness, I suppose. It's an undoneness.
0: I mean, it it doesn't hurt any less, but it does hurt less often. Also, they say, and I think that's true. But sometimes I'll get an overwhelming sense of grief, and I'll be grateful because I think, oh, thank goodness it's still there, because it means that the love was really deep. And you know, because you've got to get on with your life, and that's what my hundred percent my dad would have wanted. He was very much of a generation of let's just get on and let's not look back and let's not dwell. And you know, um, but so I get very grateful when I feel the grief because I think, oh thank goodness, it's not gone away it's just gone into respite so I can
1: live my life We'll be back for Deborah's final letter after a short break Before the break, we talked about the letter that you'd send to someone who means the world to you and the letter you would send to someone who's no longer around. The final letter is the letter you would send to somebody who might not know just how significant a role they've played in your life. So, who do you want to share your gratitude for?
0: So, I suppose there's one person I know and one person that I don't know. The one person I don't know... um, but I don't think I would have started the Guilty Feminist podcast without her is Malala Yousafzai because her bravery as a child, you know, in 2013 was so remarkable to me that she said, no, I'm going to school and at the risk of my life. You know, I I can't, I can't imagine what kind of courage that would take. And that's a sort of, for me, like an old-fashioned sort of activism where, you know, like the suffragettes knew, uh, my life's going to be terrible, but future generations of women's life are going to be immeasurably better, so I will sacrifice my my time on earth for the greater good. and But where do you get that from when you're a child? Suffragettes weren't children. In 2011, I was having massive debates with men where they were like, you're a bit loopy and you actually also think things are harder for you when they're not because you're maybe just not good enough. Um, I was mentoring a young um, British, Asian, Muslim comedian where I was trying to get this comedian gigs and it was so difficult because they just didn't see her as a comedian because she wore a headscarf. And, you know, I, she was really good. And I, you know, I sat with her and worked on her Edinburgh show with her and tried to get her a slot in Edinburgh. And I had to fight so hard to get her a slot on the free fringe and, you know, one of the free fringes. And I had to use my clout that I had, which was, you know, minimal then, because it was before the Guilty Feminist, but I had some and, you know, to, to get it through. And as a woman, uh, even a white woman, you know, where where you have the extra element of, um, you know, white privilege, it was so difficult because it, it just they didn't want women in comedy. They didn't. And to watch this, you know, to see this young woman do what she did so bravely. And then speak about it so bravely. And she and I have the same book publisher. So we did a book event together. When she spoke on stage, I watched it and it was amazing. She's just so funny and fun. And she was at Oxford and she said, oh, my brother wants to come to Oxford now. And I don't want him to come to Oxford. I'm really cool at Oxford and I don't want him coming in sort of making me uncool, you know, or something. She said something like that. It was really funny. And she was just so charming. And oh, I don't know what I was expecting but I was expecting her not to be ordinary because I think we imposed extraordinary of every, you know, I was expecting her to be some kind of superhero. And what she made me, what she made me realize is no, you are you an ordinary person can do an extraordinary act and change the world. And I think that gave me the courage I mean, The Guilty Feminist is all about, I'm a feminist, but I don't quite know what I'm doing, but at least it gave me the courage to go, I will, I I will enter the dialogue. And then, you know, with things like Josie Norton to say, I will take the risk. I'll go out on the limb to do something bigger, to do something bolder, to to use my, it might fail. It it, it might not be good enough, but I'm going to join the fight. And... 2013, 2012, 2013 was a huge, huge period for feminism. You know, it was, it was, whether that be sort of, you know, pop culture, feminism in Britain through, you know, Bridget Christie doing a big for her, Catlin Moran doing uh, How to Be a Woman. You know, there was a dialogue happening and I knew I wanted to be part of it. But I, but my thing was... I'm a feminist, but I don't know that I'm doing this right. And Bridget Christie said, you'll never find, she said to me directly, you will never find your audience until you say the thing you dare not say. And I thought, well, that's all right for you, Bridget, because you're so sure, you're so strident, you're so passionate, you're so activist, you're so angry. I, you know, and funny, hugely talented and funny, but you know, her message was clear. I've had enough. And I was like, I'm a feminist, but, but she was right. As soon as I said that, as soon as I said, I'm a feminist, but one time I went on a women's rights march and I popped into an apartment store to use the loo, And I got distracted trying out face cream. And when I came out, the march was gone. Uh, You know, hundreds of thousands of women went, I have also done something similar to that. And I, you know, and then you think, am I a real feminist? Am I allowed to ask for more space in this meeting or complain that there's, you know, that there's no black women present and yet they're speaking about, you know, racial diversity? And, you know, can I, you know, am I allowed to do that if instead of watching that important documentary uh, about, you know uh, the suffragettes. I actually watched uh, four hours of "Say Yes to the Dress." Like you know those those hypocrisies, those insecurities, those times when our values and actions don't meet. There's times when we're not perfect. They don't matter. And and so it gave me the courage to say, you know, all of those women at that of that time gave me the courage to say, I will enter this dialogue. But none more than Malala, because Malala demonstrated to me that an ordinary person can harness their extraordinary qualities and do an extraordinary act. And we are all ordinary people who have extraordinary qualities and can choose to make extraordinary acts.
1: I um, have the privilege of being the representative of Malala Um, and because when she came to live in the UK, she came to live in Birmingham and I feel um, every single week that I am calls to talk about refugees, and especially when I'm talking about those who are refugees from the Taliban, have cause to remember my very famous constituent, who... I don't think anyone could suggest for one second hasn't added immense value to the world, um, let alone just to, to good old Birmingham Yardley. Uh, we have two very famous people who came from Birmingham Yardley. One um, is Enoch Powell, the man who said the Rivers of Blood speech, and the other is Malala Yousafzai. So uh, it's quite quite the comparator wow. pulls yeah, apart, pulls apart. But she is wow. incredibly ordinary. Wow. I went to her school um, one time,
0: but when I say ordinary by the way, I don't mean she's just an ordinary girl. I mean, I mean her, her dimension. It's a bit like what you say about Josie Norton wears it lightly. She, what she wants to talk about is what, you know, when I saw her speaking and she was at university was what university students want to talk about, you know, and she did the friends reunion. You know, she has that quality of, you know, you just go, yeah, yeah, no, I'm an ordinary person in my life. I'm not inaccessible to you. I just made a big choice. Because I because I was experiencing a great injustice, and and that is it. That is, you know, we use the word inspiring too much, but that is it. Literally moves you to go. Well, then, who am I to say I'm too ordinary? That's the magic of Malala, I think
1: she it is the magic of her although um i have to say even after i, I was a member of parliament and i went in to speak at her school they'd asked me to come in and do uh like you know a sort of uh, i go into lots of schools and talk to she went to a girl's school so um especially talking to young women about activism and politics and how you know how and uh um why they should be taking that up <laughs> And I was speaking to her year at, at her school, and she wasn't in the classroom at the time. And like halfway through me talking to these girls, she came into the classroom. And, you know, she is just one of the schoolgirls, just exactly like the other girls in her class. Uh, there is nothing quite like trying to lecture about activism for Lala Youssef's so. Oh, so you God. can imagine that was, I mean, she was very gracious.
0: Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. (laughs) Um, And the other person who I hope she knows, but it's always hard to say, you know, like without sounding, um, but who she saved me a couple of times, I think, um, is Emma Thompson. Because she came along to a show, saw, it was a big show at the Palladium, saw the kind of felt the roar of the crowd, saw what we were doing. And then I just saw her backstage. I didn't really even know for sure she was in the audience. Her daughter was a fan, And then I found her wandering around backstage at the Palladium and she went, this is brilliant. And you've done something here that's, you know, feels like a kind of revolution or a, you know, a uprising, you know. She was like, but you don't have enough old people on the stage. And I was like, you're hardly old, Emma. But she was like, you know, she was like older, you know, you've got a lot of, you know, 30 somethings and 20 somethings we probably had on the stage. And she said, "Um, I want to come out and say something. And uh, she said, but I've heard you're running over. I was like, we'll make time, we'll pay the late fee. And anyway, she came out and she just did this amazing piece where she just did, she talked about doing stand-up as a young woman and how sexist it was and sort of did a bit of a stand-up comedy routine. And that support, you know, and she supported me throughout. And and I don't know, the thing about Emma is that she really is a genuinely, genuine-hearted supporter of women, and she understands her influence and she understands the power of her as a human being, you know, nothing to do with her career, just she has a magnetic energy, but also, you know, the power that comes with, you know, a, such an est- a sort of esteemed career in show business. And she's very generous with her time and her emotional energy and focus. And And a couple of times when I've been really, really down and thought I can't go on. Because something's happened, she's been there, you know, and and really been there for me, really, really been there for me, and uh, you know, it's it's always, you know, in Britain, very difficult to say to somebody if it wasn't for you, because I think then you it sounds like you're flattering somebody, or you
1: know, and I and we just don't or, like that here in Britain,
0: <laughs> yeah, or it's like, well, I have another biscuit, you know. Um, <laughs> so I hope Emma Thompson knows. I think she does, but in case she doesn't, I'll send her this podcast um, because it's meant the world. And there are times when you just think I'm getting it all wrong. I can't do it. And I can't, you know, and it's been such a tough year and a half in every single way for all of us. And, you know, and if you then have like a personal blow or a career, you know, derailment or something, having somebody who, who, the whole world believes in, believing in you, means you can keep going, you know, and then I can keep going and I can funnel what I do into what Josie does. And it's this, you know, sort of big hug of women, this big, you know, virtuous circle, I suppose, this big, warm feminist hug. I don't know how well Josie knows Emma, but what I can tell you is if it wasn't for Emma, I wouldn't be able to, you know, support Josie in the way that I do. And, what Josie's doing is supporting people who have nobody and no hope at times. And, you know, more than coats and food, what she's loved delivered to those partners is hope. And those people on the ground is the hope. And somebody has got to, give you hope for you to pass that hope on. Somebody has to. And I think it doesn't matter who you are or who you know or how influential or, you know, well-known or famous or whatever the people that in your life are, you know, if you treat the elderly woman who lives on, you know, next two doors down from you like your grandmother, then she will be. That is what will happen. I'm telling you, that is what will happen. If you give someone hope, if you just, you know, agree to... Stay in DM contact with a refugee who's somewhere that's very difficult and you're just someone that they can tell their bad news and their good news to, and you can advocate for them, maybe write to you know some write to organizations on their behalf and they know someone's out there trying for them. Then that's a moment of humanity and joy that wouldn't exist. otherwise, you don't always have to succeed to deliver hope because hope is what human beings run on.
1: So uh, how would you sign off your letter to Malala Yousafzai? I would say, firstly,
0: I don't know if you're reading this because you must get a lot of letters, (laughs) but the act of deep bravery to demonstrate that the power does not always lie with violence that you took has emboldened millions of us and we are an army and we are your army.
1: And how would you sign one off to Emma Thompson?
0: Ah, uh, darling Emma. More than once you've saved my life or at least saved my sanity
1: and I will forever be more powerful because of you. And how do you feel having written the letters and thought about the people that you want to thank?
0: It makes me feel filled with gratitude and it makes me feel more, much more powerful because you realise the, you know, the invisible army that you do have around you. You know, Maya Angelou saying that when you, you know, when you go into, uh, a, I think she said something like an interview, I remember her saying once, imagine all the people around you who love you and imagine them sitting around you when you're in that interview space or that, you know, that high pressure situation. And it's such a great thing to do because, you know, just sitting and thinking about this and and thinking what I'd say and what I'd write is in itself a sort of manifestation of my army of people, some of whom didn't know I existed, like Maya Angelou, and some of whom I know I could text if I was locked out of my house at three o'clock in the morning and you know crying and had been robbed and they'd say right I'm coming to get you or I'm calling you a taxi and they'll bring you here but all of those people in some way or another are just as real and bringing something just as propelling and positive and wonderful forward it's 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 really proven to me what Brené Brown says about gratitude. There's no happiness without gratitude, but you've got to have a gratitude practice. So I might now, inspired by your podcast, Jess, write a letter to somebody that I that I know and send it to them or that I don't know. Or from the past each week to ignite myself in this way, because it's been a really wonderful thing.
1: Yay, I feel thrilled. Well, you have been a brilliant guest and you have uh, entered into it with all the heart and spirit I expected you to, Deb. Um, And it has been brilliant to listen to your letters. So thank you very much for sharing.
0: Thank you, Jess. And can my sign off to you be, thank you so much for providing this glorious space where we can come and pay some gratitude and homage and love.
1: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips. If you want to hear more conversations just like this, make sure you follow Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips on the podcast provider of your choice. And why not write a letter to your friends telling them all about this podcast? And you can also follow us on social media. We're at Jess Phillips Pod. Goodbye.